Welcome, everybody, to the Unbalanced Note podcast. We have a very special episode for you today. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by my host with the most, the man who I'd like to talk about James Cameron with, about Spielberg and Lucas with on a daily basis, in the shower, in the bed, in a car, Mark Chafferdini. How are you doing, big shooter? I'm doing well. I I thought we weren't supposed to tell people about that, but uh, thanks for airing and getting it all out in the open. Oh, I tell everyone. I shout it from the rooftops, but we have an excellent show today. We have three intercontinental champions of music, film, television, producing, podcasts, part of the Blockbuster podcast. We have Matt Schrader, Peter Bavietz, and Fernando Areo. Did I get everybody's (laughs) name right? Perfect. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go with yes. Let's go with yes. All right. So thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. We're very happy to talk with you guys. I want to, I just want to start with, uh, with, for each of you and we'll start with you, Matt, where did it all begin with you in music and movies? Was it something you watched with your parents? Was it something you saw on an old VHS tape? Where did it all begin with this music and movie fascination? Um, well, you know, it's this, it's this, I mean, it's one of those things that goes so far back that it's hard to kind of identify where the first kind of discovery was. Um, I think that I always kind of recognized moments where music added things that, that words and pictures couldn't in in uh in films and that was always kind of a special moment to me um and i i can think of like there's several you know han zimmer scores that um that i remember watching and thinking like wow the music is really adding a lot here um but even before that i mean i i think it's like you know as a little kid running around in the backyard playing in the dirt and humming the indiana jones theme and i have no idea where that came from that was just kind of part of the zeitgeist i can't imagine that i was allowed to watch Indiana Jones at, at, you know, five or six years old. So, um, although maybe it was on TV and, you know, edited or something, but, um, but you know, the theme just sticks with you and it adds so much to the overall experience and it's, it creates this magic. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I, I, I like that. What about you, Peter? Oh, I, I think what Matt is saying is it, it's so true. It's like the, the way emotionally music talks, um, it plants memories. Like I remember going to see E.T. when I was a tiny kid and I don't remember the movie or at least then I didn't remember the movie until I rewatched it when I was a teenager, but I remembered the the themes and I remembered the, the excitement that came through with it. So I think there's so much to be said about uh, when we do, when we tell stories about, figuring out how to tell stories with an emotional tool. It's just so much more effective. Like if you remember it as a kid, like that is the most basic primal well way of telling stories that it, it just works. I like that. And Fernando, where did it all begin for you? Oh, well, musically, that's a very long story, but when it comes to just film music and music that enhances a story, I think since I was a kid, you know, I would play with my, action figures or whatnot and put on even a classical piece as a soundtrack to whatever I was doing. And as I started becoming, a, you know, getting curious about writing my own music, I would go to watch movies and come back home and immediately try to figure out the score on the piano or whatever that music was. 
And uh, I think part of it is because for me, the storytelling device of music can be probably one of the most descriptive things there is in film, you know. Right. And Fernando, do you remember the first instrument you purchased and the first song you uh, played on it or you learned? I do. Well, it wasn't the first instrument I purchased, but the first instrument I came into contact with was my grandmother's piano. And this was before they gave me piano lessons. And my mom used to sing actually like the main melody from Peter and the Wolf a lot because she was a musician herself. Uh, And I just tried to figure it out on the piano and started like note per note trying to figure it out, you know, single finger. (laughs) No, I I remember I did the same thing. I had that real little like light blue Casio electronic Mm -hmm. piano. And Mm -hmm. I remember learning the uh, Axel Foley theme from Beverly Hills Cop with like... Oh, totally. totally. And I think the first, uh, you know, like uh, film music or media music thing I tried to figure out uh, was the E.T. theme because I was obsessed with it since I was a kid. I I think I wanted to meet (laughs) E.T. I think we all had that, though. And I think... Yeah, a lot of people had not not speaking exactly to ET, but like when as kids we sat down in front of a keyboard. There's this mm-hmm. moment your brain for the first time realizes I made this. Mm-hmm. Whatever that thing that you played was, like oh, I can do this, and I can play this melody, or I can hit the pans with my you know wooden sticks or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like you realize that there's a creative element to what you just did, and I think that's. It's it's so exciting. Yeah, there's this very as innate, kids, right? There's this very innate sense of discovery when it comes to sound and music, because I think is sound is probably one of the things that creates the most affect in us, you know, that it immediately makes us transports us somewhere. I like that. And uh, for for Matt, um, your background, you have a lot of uh, journalistic background. And what mm-hmm. was the spark that ignited the composer passion? Because both Mark and I are just obsessed with film scores, film soundtracks and composers. And, you know, being in band and playing a bunch of woodwinds, I'm always into that. So what was your spark and passion to follow the composer route? Yeah, yeah, I think that's where um, I first met Mark. I know we came to Dallas when Score, a film music documentary, was coming out. I directed that, worked with Peter on that, um, and um, that's how we we first connected. Um, I, I think it's there's kind of a um, there's a special kind of I don't know. There, it, there's a reason that people go to the gym and they listen to soundtracks, you know, and they listen to like there's there's an inspiration there that I think can add something and it's kind of psychological and it's not really understood. And, Are you alluding um, to Rocky? Rocky, <laughs> Rocky definitely helps. That'll get you going. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's um, it, it's this kind, it's this kind of evasive thing that's not tangible. I mean, in, in score, we had even a little sequence where, um, that I thought was pretty interesting were Moby, the electronic musician, uh, not really a film composer. Um, he says that music is this, you know, the one art form that really technically doesn't even exist. It's just how the air moves. And we register that in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's, that's a really cool thing. I think, you know, Peter works in that field for movies. He works in, in sound and, um, 
and making you know all of the amazing sound design of Blockbuster. Um, but I feel like the the way that music and story combine together, you know, it, it, it's it it is really kind of the peak of storytelling because it can do all of those things that the 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 words themselves can't. You know, it yeah. really elevates the experience. So I feel like uh, one of the things that I think music does so well is that it's probably in a way the most abstract uh, art form in the sense that the composer can put in, you know, their emotions and their feelings into the piece, but the listener, no matter what uh, country they're from, they might get the gist of what the general emotion is, but depending on your own personal experiences or even the different day of the week or moment of your life, you gain a different, understanding for that music or a different emotion for it and it's just a tool that can allow you to really suspend that disbelief and create this uh, otherworldly experience yeah uh, yeah that's cool and uh peter can you kind of set the stage for this documentary that was released this really cool score uh, composer documentary of how like we're y'all right out of school and you're like mm. oh my god and because this documentary really uh captures like the biggest names in not only composing but film directing filmmaking and right. it's like kind of like an ambitious project and it just succeeds so you set the stage like where you just right out of school you're like oh my god how are we going to get well, all these people in one thing I, I remember i was working on you know my my first movies and 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 starting to get some movies and sundance and my friend one day reached out and said hey um take a look at this trailer. I, I know the producer, they're looking to do sound. And my jaw dropped when I watched the trailer because um, I, I come from a musical family. My mom is a composer and I listen to film scores all the time and pretty much exclusively to classical music. I mean, Tchaikovsky is the number one musician for me. And uh, when I, so when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh... Wow. Okay. So they, they, of course they need sound. So we started talking with Matt and, and, and the whole team. And uh, I mean, that was a, such a joy ride that project because we had, I can't remember how much like hundred something music cues in a 90 minute movie. It was like mm-hmm. more, more music <laughs> than minutes. Uh, so, th- so it was an incredible challenge to to figure out and you know they did a lot of work on the editorial side but like how do we go in and out of cues well and, and i remember of... that first when you first watched it you yeah. came out of that and you were like that's a lot uh but also like you were excited and you were like that you know abbey road you know i've been to places like this and you can feel the energy there and we can bring this alive by you know being able to actually put ourselves in these rooms where you know there's this kind of magical experience happening so we were like oh, okay he gets it <laughs> well i remember I, I i grew up in a music recording studio where it was like analog gear now music recording studios are boring because it's a it's computers and that's it but it used to be racks and racks of little lights leds or even not leds because leds are more modern but like lights and i would i would sometimes take my blanket and a pillow and sleep under the console with all the lights surrounding you because <laughs> it's analog you wouldn't turn it off ever because any power surge yeah. basically damages the gear and so when i when i saw the movie and i'm like yeah abby wrote i'm like i know emotionally where this movie has to go mm-hmm. so it was it was such a wondrous story and so much insight 
uh, of things that as a film score person, I came in thinking like, oh, I know so much. And then you leave and you're like, whoa, I just learned like another lifetime worth of knowledge of not only how they create film scores, record film scores, but like what the real intent is behind everything and what tools and, and tricks are, are done all the time. So anyone who hasn't seen the movie, I, I mean, highly, highly recommend it. Just you got to watch the movie because it it's kind of a primer to understanding what film music does that you can't even begin to understand that it does it. And we purposely tried to gear it toward, you know, we, we were slowly kind of plugging into a uh, soundtrack fan base, you know, of people who, who spend all of their, their uh, disposable income buying the latest soundtracks. And um, we were not totally sure whether to lean into that, which is sometimes an, a little bit of a niche audience, or to try to create something that seems like an entry point for kind of your, your average person that, you know, knows a few tunes, but doesn't remember what they're from or, you know, th- those kind of things. Cause the tunes all get, they get lodged in everyone's head, but there's only a handful of people that'll say, Oh yeah, that was Hans Zimmer from this movie. And that you know, he did it, you know, that was at this part of the, of the movie. And so we purposely tried to, to make this kind of as, as accessible as possible of an entry point um, and then show that there's, you know, this huge excitement and energy in this uh, in this field of film composing and the possibilities for what music can do are really endless, especially now where everything is so, you know, it's it's accessible, but it's also like we are starting to get into this digital era where you can replicate sounds using digital tools. And I know Peter will say there's no substitute for some analog things, but it really does mean that, you know, the horizon is there's so much that you can do now. And what you've done is you've taken what may have at some point been the niche leanings, like you mentioned, and extrapolate that to score the podcast. So the time and stories and experiences that you didn't get to touch on in 90 plus minutes, you do every other week and you get the Patrick Doyle got a cookie for you. You get, (laughs) you know, James Newton Howard explaining about, uh, you know, who doesn't like to do interviews, you get more time with him. So yeah. um, yeah, can you talk about how you exploded that? And, uh, and yeah, I mean, the off? next kind of natural evolution, I think, of the documentary, you know, because we we were really fortunate enough to have some to find some good mainstream success for a documentary, and um, and a lot of the people that were the super fans were saying like, oh man, the only thing that we we hate about your movie is that it's not long enough. And it's like, okay, <laughs> like that's a very self-serving uh, uh, compliment for, for me to even bring up now. But we, we were like, okay, we have so much footage, so much extra stuff. Um, and we have contact with a lot of these composers now that have really interesting stories about stuff. And, you know, we don't necessarily need to know in a 90 minute documentary. I don't know that you want to know about Alexander Desplat doing, you know, some piece of Grand Budapest Hotel. I don't know if that belongs in a 90-minute film that's like, here's what film composing is. It might be interesting, but it's also a really interesting thing to then jump in and be like, oh, yeah, you know, Wes Anderson himself wanted to play such and such instrument when we were recording on that and, you know, whatever. And, like, there's these little stories that are so – that are a piece of this fabric that's created in pop culture – 
and um and you know we're we're able to go in and and uh interview some of these composers i think we've done we're on our third season and we've done something like i don't know 55 interviews or something different with different composers um i don't think we've had a, a repeat yet but um <laughs> but yeah we've been really uh really lucky and and um and have have you know a good lineup every uh starts roughly every april is when we have a new season release so we're at the tail end of our third season now well uh one of the things uh you know being a journalist and you know i guess brian and i can consider ourselves low-level journalists you know we review movies we speak to composers we get their stories out like you've done with the the movie and the podcast you're getting people's stories out now you're making your own stories so i think that's a great arc that you three that we have you on the show to talk about doing your own thing you're still telling somebody else's story but you're making it your own so do you want to jump into season one or do you want to start hitting on season two of um, blockbuster where do you where do you feel like you want to start from the top all right let's do it (laughs) yeah we could start from that so i mean really the um i think the goal was to tell a story that we started to stumble upon, uh, across when doing score. You know, we have this big section on John Williams, of course, that's in score, a film music documentary. And how could you make a documentary about film composers without a big section about John Williams? Um, mm-hmm. But there's, there was this relationship at the core of that, that's between Spielberg and, and, uh, and John Williams. Um, but then it also kind of extends into star Wars, obviously. And so I started to come across when we were doing research for the film, the relationship that, um, and this kind of creative support that Spielberg and Lucas had when they were putting together their first movies, which Jaws and Star Wars had changed everything. Um, And I I think it was interesting enough that nobody had really put together that there was a strong friendship and somewhat of a, a collaborative creativity between them um, they visited each other's film sets. They were both famously disastrous, Jaws and Star Wars both. A- everyone had very low expectations for this. It was chaotic. And these are people who are now household names. George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, everyone knows them. And uh, and they weren't at that point. This was what transformed them. So um, we thought the it's really a story. It's the biopic of how they came to be, how they created the start of kind of the modern era of film and television and so many things that we now see the fingerprints on. And, um, and then the thing that saved both of their films arguably was John Williams music. So you have, again, this, you know, relationship between these very ambitious creators that are fighting for their vision. um, But it, it then needs to kind of mesh together with some other art form to elevate the overall thing into something that can really break through and, um, and be a huge pop culture sensation. So I think that was the story that had not been told yet um, that, that we really wanted to try to plug into and do it in a way that felt like we were actually able to, you know, bring the audience back in time. Um, versus doing something more kind of documentary style, which I think uh, a lot of people might do instead. What, what kind of uh, 
research or uh, collaboration did you have with any of uh, with Lucas or Spielberg about this, or do they listen? Do you know, or what? what how does that work? Um, we know some of them and their their various companies that they have now uh, have listened and have been very supportive, which is great. When we were making it, we purposely did not want to make this um, a thing that needed their approval. Um, we didn't want it to feel like it was a PR thing. We didn't want it there to be some conflict of interest. I, I'm a journalist by by uh, training and, and trade, and uh, I don't love when there's a little bit of a conflict of interest, a little bit of an expectation of, like, you're going to say good things about me in this thing, right? You know, like, I don't want that. Yeah, no. <laughs> now, that said, like, there are, I, I think, our stories were, were overwhelmingly positive. We're focusing on the th- contributions that they had. So I don't think they would have had an issue. They might have steered away from one thing or another. Um, but overall, I think we've, we've heard really, really positive things. And, um, and that's been great, you know, because we, uh, we were a little nervous for a little while. <laughs> uh, and you always are, cause you know, you don't know what, what, uh, Spielberg or, or Lucas are going to think of something like this, but, um, but it's been really fulfilling and, you know, we approached this journalistically. So we built out, you know, an entire kind of timeline of their histories and where they cross paths and, um, and tried to actually use their exact language, you know, that they've talked about in hundreds of interviews in the past so that we could recreate these moments where conversations took place and it then built into something that changed the world. And, 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 you know, Peter, when people talk about films, sometimes they get too focused on the visuals, you know, like Back to the Future 4K is coming out. Let's go get it. But with respect to this podcast, it's completely in the dark, so to speak. So you're kind of like fighting an entertainment battle with one hand tied behind your back. But uh, the other hand is a haymaker. So talk to us about the sound and how important it was. And, you know, like season episode five with that telephone phone call. That's, I'm still geeking out about that. (laughs) Well, to answer that, I have to go back in time a bit to the, to the day Matt called me. And, um, I I love this story because Matt said, Hey, you know, I want to make a podcast and, uh, it's a story of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and their friendship. And I was like, okay. And I never thought that I'd be doing podcasts because I work in TV. I work in film. I do things that you go watch in, in the cinema. You flip your channel, uh, your your TV on, and that's the material I work on. And I, I'm like podcast, Matt. That's that's such a interesting, politely format. And he's like, no, no, give it a chance. Take a read to the script. And I read it, and I was like, oh, it's not a journalistic thing. It's not Matt Schrader sitting in front of the microphone saying, oh, this is what happened and this is what happened and that's it. No, he's like, we're basically making a movie without the picture. And once I understood that idea, and that's the that's the big thing about this, about Blockbuster is we're not trying to make a podcast, tell people what happened. We're, we're really tell, doing a movie without the camera. And... Um, once I understood that, I said, well, Matt, you know, this is going to take a while because we actually have to approach it the same way we approach movies. And it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be fun, but it's going to be a lot of work. And, uh, and Matt said, yeah, I'm down. And so once we both agreed that we're down, then we started, uh, we started by recording all the actors. And then we started creating the worlds. And we started looking at every scene by scene 
how do we make it immersive without using tricks and making it feel like it's all eye candy or ear candy in our case. It was more about how do we make this immersive story wise and, and not, not never would we would actually sometimes say, Oh, like, yeah, let's not do that because that that's a gimmick. We don't want to do gimmicks. We just want the audience to forget. It's kind of like you go to, to a movie theater and you're essentially walking, watching a rectangle, right? Or at home, you're watching a rectangle. It is such a fictional, it, it's an invention that you're sitting there watching this rectangle when it used to be a square black box and yet you can lose yourself for like 90 minutes or two hours completely forget about yeah. the world right and so that's the same principle where we said okay well then we we need some kind of longer f- format and we said okay 20 30 minutes would be good because we want people to enjoy it on their drive to to work or if they really want to spend their evening with us amazing but yeah we we said that that's kind of the direction that we want to go into and and it's a lot of work because you're you're literally doing every single possible thing. You're once you realize that the, all the actors are recorded in a studio, in a pristine environment, right? Then you realize, oh, well, then we need footsteps. We need them touching. We need them patting each other. We need someone taking a pen and taking a paper and actually writing something on that paper. <laughs> you need you need doors. You need cars. You need people. You need crowds. You know, when you're on the street. You need the interaction of the world with your characters. So that's you know what I thought was one of the funniest ones is is just this, (laughs) just like a sip out of a cup. You know, that just that. But it says so much when you hear it. It's just and it's just kind of there. But each one of those things is something that that we have to we have to you know and all of them are put in order. And all of them are a feeling thing, right? Because even when we're cutting these things with, like, I'll cut it, and then we're listening to Matt with multiple reviews that we do of these things. It's like, oh, wait, you know what? That sip could actually work better if it's after he says his sentence. Because then emotionally, (laughs) that's what it does. Versus at the beginning, he's kind of, like, bored, and he sips, and then he talks. So it's like, you find, you, you, you genuinely put the audience into the scene where you have, you know, in season one, you had uh, George Lucas and Steven talking about something, right? In season two, well, we have James Cameron talking with Arnold Schwarzenegger about something. And, uh, you know, Arnold is like putting on his leather gloves about to smash a window of a car. It's like, you can tell so much about, you can tell so much without words that that's really what we're leveraging this format of podcasts on which is the nonverbal thing but the nonverbal essentially becomes the sonic so we we have two layers one is this all the sound design but i don't like to think of sound design as uh the crazy swishes and and the trailer sound effects and big booms and that's yes that's for commercials and trailers but sound design is really the creation of the world you're responsible for from beginning to the end of the whole thing. Yeah, you're what kind the of world... a production designer now. You're, well, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because in, in Polish, I'm from Poland, we have the word, we actually say the director of sound, which is interesting that you have the director of photography. You have so many other directors on a film production, but for some reason the director of sound doesn't exist, although arguably like we actually very often will internally use that term of like who's actually the director of the soundtrack because that's that person. But the one thing that I have to say is 
you know, season one and two both are very much based on characters that have a strong understanding of music. And so one part of all this, apart from the sound design, meaning the world creation, and yeah, we have those fun scenes like the the excitement of the phone call crossing the transatlantic ocean. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, but there are scenes where like, it's not just sound design, right? It's, it's also the music. So that's the beautiful partnership that I love having is when music and sound go hand in hand and we tell a story together. And there's actually in both season one and two and season two, there's a terrific example uh, of a scene where like literally sound and music played a, a role together in, in telling a story. Maybe Fernando, you wanted to, you want to say that? Are we on to season two already or should I just... Well, just, just tell, <laughs> tell that scene. I think it's a fun story. Oh, yeah. It's just uh, this amazing phone call where we actually get to see how James Cameron has learned to be a player in Hollywood, you know, even though he's uh, arguably fairly young to the game, but he already is so savvy about this. And um, when we have that scene, I actually was wondering... When I first heard it, I said, oh, well, are we going to have music here? How is it going to play? Because it's so easy to not have any music during a phone call like that, you know? And then Peter, um, when he sent me the bounce of, of that episode for me to work on, he also called me and said, I have an idea for this episode. I think it's episode five, right? And he says, uh, but don't tell Matt about it because <laughs> he needs to hear the complete, the final uh, the final product. And he basically sent me the phone call with a swing rhythm to it. And I heard and I said, oh, this is going to be so fun and very cool to work on. And originally, I think my first instinct was to write, uh, you know, sort of a big band kind of theme for this. But then I realized this is more mischievous rather than sleek. You know, he's playing them like children a little bit and trying to find a way to get his way. So then I went with this more, uh, I don't know, I would say uh, mischievous kind of vibe with the music and it ended up turn, uh, playing out really fun. It was probably one of my favorite cues to write. Well, and so I gave, I gave Fernando literally just a click track that I created. And the reason I needed a click track was because it's, it's a montage of phone calls. And when people talk over the phone and they start and end, they put down the receiver and pick it up and the phone rings and you, mm -hmm. you get all these little sounds. And I said, well, this has to be rhythmical. So I just created a click track, click, 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 click on, on my end, although I never do this stuff. But, and I started cutting the phone up and down, -ching, -ching, mm -hmm. you know, all the ringing in tempo. And then I gave that to Fernando. I said, here, do the music in this tempo. I'll shift my stuff around if needed. Yeah. But like, here's the outline of it. And he did the music and all the phones up and downs. They, they became part of the music essentially mm. in, in so, the whole sequence. But there's also this great effect that you did that kind of uh, was what pushed me away from doing the, uh, the big band moment, which was you had this sort of uh, phone ringing sound that was in triplets. Da, 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 you yeah. know, but it kind of is the line, you know, the phone line reaching through and I just played with that even in the orchestration and it's in the accompaniment sometimes and it kind of developed and I try to match sometimes you know match the key sometimes do it in a different key or a different chord underneath it so that it sounds it comes out it, it was really fun really fun 
and, and bouncy. You, you use the word mischievous, which I, his motivations were a little mischievous, but it comes across kind of like there's a, a bit in Ghostbusters, a dun, 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 and it's just it's yeah. very playful and uh, picks up on that that whole vibe. Oh but yeah. Now, for, but now, Fernando, you're you're new to the series this uh, this year. Um, what was kind of noticeable about last season um, with the two composers is the through line was kind of trying to emulate John Williams, mm-hmm. which is a very difficult task um, that kind of spoke to uh, how it influenced uh, both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Uh, I-, I love the notes that you did at the very beginning of the first episode, the sort of underwatery themes. And it's not mm-hmm. really my perception, not tied to any one composer because Horner, uh, Cameron worked with multiple composers. So what kind of, did that free you up, not having to tie to one specific person? Uh, you know, it's funny because sometimes it's both challenging and freeing. Because as we know, in the days of, uh, you know, temp tracks, you often get temp scores, you often get uh, pigeonholed into writing how one specific composer. And in this case, it was definitely, you know, I wanted to keep some elements of that, uh, uh, John Williams vibe, as you heard in episode three. But yeah, absolutely. The fact that he worked with many different composers and there's not really a, a, I would say like a James Cameron sound to his films because also his films, from film to film, they're radically different stylistically too. Um, Unlike Spielberg and maybe George Lucas, you see definitely a bit more of a stylistic uh, choice, even if the genres are different from the films, but you see it. And that's partly why John Williams' music is so married to these two uh, directors, in my opinion. And yeah, some of it is me trying to emulate a little bit of what those composers that James Cameron has worked with, specifically uh, James Horner. And that's more hidden within the way that I voice certain chords or a couple of orchestrations. But at the same time, I wanted to put my imprint on it because I was free to do so since... This isn't specifically about uh, John Williams, for example, like in the first season. So he yeah, was. And I think I told you several side. times, Fernando, when we were working through some of that stuff, and you said the way James Horner would do things is probably like this, and I would say, yes, but is that the best that we could that it can be? Because mm-hmm. if we can do something else that's going to be even stronger than that, we don't necessarily need to stick with mm-hmm. kind of the the sound that you would expect from James Horner, and we can reserve mm-hmm. that for places where you know. I, like I really love in this series um, the a lot of the characters have themes. James Horner has his own theme when he uh, it becomes part of the storyline when he's working or Jamie Horner um, when he's working with James Cameron. And um, it's, it's a simple theme, but it's very um, it's just very pleasing to the ear. It's very kind of welcoming and kind. And, um, mm-hmm. and it sounds like the type of, thing that i mean it really harkens back i think to to james horner and then obviously thematically when we get into certain things aliens uh or or what's coming up and we haven't really had anything on this yet but titanic you know we'll start to to dip into a little bit of that feel and it's a cool opportunity to tell you know original storytelling Mm -hmm. through a little bit of that flavor that fernando is able to kind of you know tap into yeah, totally. And I mean, even sections like uh, everything on Terminator, the score to Terminator, even though it has that rec- recognizable rhythm and tan, 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 you know, it's not, it's not a score that you go out and hum. You know, it's not a score that you just kind of 
remember specifically and you say, oh, this could, you might, if you listen to it, you might remember it, but you don't go out and, you know, just immediately recall it. So it was cool to, to try to to a version of that that is more, much closer to what modern film scoring is while still using some of those 80s sounds and everything. Yeah. Uh, so that was an opportunity to do that, what you just said, that we take a concept or an idea from the period or from whatever the film was and sort of develop it. And you spoke about the sounds at the, in the opening of the whole season, these watery sounds. And, you know, James Horner did things like this for Titanic, but I didn't want to make it so obvious. So instead of doing what he would do, I did like major minor chords and stuff like this. That is not something he would do in those instances and kind of made it my own and developed from that concept. Excellent. That's cool. And so with this amount of work and dedication and collaboration with the music of this show, can, do, do are us fans going to get a, an awesome vinyl release, LP record release with this, <laughs> with like amazing artwork and all of this good stuff? Because, you know, us soundtrack fans, we want this. <laughs> it's super it's so something that we've been uh working through right now um is uh is how we're going to release this and um we are uh excited to be able to say that we will be releasing a original podcast score for this um mm -hmm. i don't know if it'll be if it'll be vinyl um i'm i'm a big fan <laughs> of vinyl a recent convert actually to uh to to vinyl thanks to my wife that uh, forced me to buy a <laughs> record player. <laughs> All right, fine. It's kind of cool. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Welcome, but yeah. Matt. Welcome. I, I know. I'm late to the, late to the party. But um, yeah, we're, uh, we'll be releasing the, the soundtrack for this. So um, it's, uh, I mean, you know, we have a very unique style of podcast, obviously. This is not, um, you know, a, a documentary style or kind of, you know, a, a someone interviewing a selection of people who were, you know, back there back in the day. We've, although we've started to do that on some bonus episodes um, for some, some extra stuff, um, extra perspective, but our main storyline is, is narrative and we want people to feel like they understand who the characters are and where they're going. And there's huge inspiration in all of this um, and, and seeing the transformations that take place. You know, James Cameron is the truck driver and he's 22 years old and doesn't know what he's going to do. And, um, and he's dropped out of college and like, where do you go from here? It's very easy to just kind of be like, okay, well, I guess I'm just a truck driver now. And um, that's not what happens. Instead, you have this amazing ambition that, that is, is deeply embedded in him. And I think it makes him a really interesting hero of this story um, that he refuses to kind of give into that. And instead he doubles down every time and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make this. And um, that's so inspiring. And I feel like that's part of the reason the music that we've, we've built through all of this, that Fernando um, has, has done such a great job of creating throughout. It, it's something that feels uplifting and, um, and really kind of, uh, I mean, my goal is always, if we can have a scene, give people goosebumps and at several points throughout this series, Fernando just knocks it out of the park on some, some musical uh, cues. And uh, it was really, I mean, that's the most fun kind of creative thing to work on 
is when you have something that has the power to be able to, you know, take a narrative, transform it into music, and then really elevate it. No, I, I like that. And we were looking forward to the soundtrack to be released for sure. Um, I've got to ask, you know, listening to the show, it's unbelievably good on all levels. But uh, this Arnold Schwarzenegger character, this person who does Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's uncanny. <laughs> it's, I mean, where, how did this happen? And does he just go around in life doing this voice? <laughs> Uh, it's it's interesting because so okay so we went into this season with um and peter you'll recall that very early on we're like crap we have a hundred characters oh <laughs> in yeah this story and we're like okay how can we so we we eventually whittled it down to like 78 or whatever 75 our, uh, i think is our total something but like, like those that. are all people that yeah. this we don't have documentary stuff for this this is you know it's very rare in the next episode, there's one exception to that where you'll hear the real David Letterman um, from when he interviewed James Cameron um, back in like 89. But like, aside from that, we got to go record all this stuff. So, um, so, and there are certain people with their, the way they speak, their, their accents. Um, they're very recognizable. Most of them are you've actors. Got Arnold, you've got s- people like Sigourney Weaver, Leonardo, you Leonardo know, DiCaprio. You've got a, a lot of actors, a lot of actors who, like, they speak in a certain way, right? Right. Bill Paxton, yeah. Yeah, so we oh, started yeah, looking... Bill Paxton, yeah. My we started looking all over for people that would, would be able to take us from just a voice kind of representing that character into someone that you can actually kind of believe is actually maybe that character. And, um, and so with Arnold, that was really tough because everybody does an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, but almost all of them, yeah, almost all of them, you, they have to be saying, get to the chopper in order for anyone to be like, Oh, that's Arnold. And if they say like, I want a ham sandwich, you'll have no idea who they're trying to imitate. So, um, so we found uh, we found a, 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 there was a small handful of people that were so strong and like we looked all over the place. There was a guy in Toronto who's a stand-up comedian, uh, David Andrew Brent's his name, and he uh, is does other things. He's been an actor in a couple things before, but um, but he had like one video that was recorded. It looked like on you know someone's cell phone before he went on for a stand-up thing, and he's just saying like, "Hey, come out and see me at at you know such and such." But he's saying it in the Arnold Schwarzenegger accent, and he's just kind of goofing off. And this one video, you know, it's it's weird because there's nothing else of this guy really. And this one video, um, you know, got him on like some local news stuff in Toronto, and he came on. Everyone thought that was kind of funny. This is several years ago, and he hasn't really done anything since then with with the kind of the Arnold impression. And um, and it, it was it was just strong enough. And he was talking about totally other stuff that we said we should reach out and see how uh, if, if this guy would be willing to record some things from, from Toronto. So we found a little uh, studio for him to record in there and brought him out, and he was fantastic. And, uh, and we went through, uh, we recorded a bunch of stuff, and it, it was really, really good. So um, I, one of my favorite things about this season is we have some really good sound alikes on yeah. different people. And, and uh, if I can just jump in, it's like the thing with those sound alikes is you don't want whatever accent or mannerism or, or the way someone speaks to get in the way 
Because at the end of the day, people are talking about something, right? Arnold is talking about, well, in the case of the episode that you that's already released, he's talking about, I'll be back. He can't pronounce I'll be back. <laughs> and he's like, I will be back. And it's like, you don't want the accent to get in the way. Or like, in general, there's so many characters throughout where it would be so easy for and that I'll give you an example. We could very easily work in, invent some line for Arnold to say that includes the phrase, get to the chopper. We could very easily yeah. be like, oh, is this yeah. the part where they get to the chopper or whatever? Like, whatever. We could make up yeah. something like that if we really wanted to. That would totally be lost on the audience because they would be like, oh, he said get to the chopper. You know, whatever came after that, they would miss. Uh, so what we wanted to do, plus then we'd be inventing lines. <laughs> so... Um, so we, but we purposely didn't want to distract there. We wanted someone that embodied the character that we could, you know, was believable, was was uh, that sounded really good, that was enjoyable to listen to, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and David did so well at that. Well, you know, you um, as soon as he spoke the first time, and he says, "Mr. Cameron." I mean, I think Brian and I just just bought right into it. But one of the things I noticed is to echo what you're saying he never came across as over the top. You know, Peter, you were saying his mannerisms were just very commonplace. I mean, you did this cool thing where when he sat down, Matt narrates, his arms were like tree trunks. And then you hear this sort of stretching of the material. And then when he sits down, he just talks. He says, I don't want to be, you know, I I don't want to be in a movie if I don't have that many lines. I don't want to be the bad guy. But it's so matter of fact. And I think that speaks more to an Arnold impersonation than like you're saying, Matt, if he says, you know, it's not a tumor. You know, right. Well, well, one of my less conscious, but like kind of to the point was uh, our uh, the actor that voiced young James Cameron. Um, So the funny story was like when he actually came in and we recorded him. This was pre-COVID when we could still have people come to the studio. (laughs) Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I remember those times because like basically the whole thing was pretty much done remotely after that. But he came in and he finished and he didn't know who James Cameron was until we finished. And his mom said, well, it's the guy that did Terminator. (laughs) And he's like, what? And it was only after the session that he realized who he was playing in the first place. And that's why it worked because the, the, a lot of these actors, I mean, all the actors that we work with, we're like so lucky because they're professional actors. They know what they're doing. Um, they're just being that person. And that, and that, and it takes it to a whole new level because it, it's easy for, you know, Matt and I could be voicing these people, but it's not the same thing. It's this, we're, we're the audience. Again, it's kind of what I said at the beginning. You want that audience to just enjoy that conversation at the table where James Cameron is trying to convince Arnold Schwarzenegger to play the Terminator, you know, and, and that's where you want the audience to be. You don't want the audience to be thinking, Oh, what a cool voice he has. No, you just forget about it. Just go with the story. Now, Matt, you're wearing a shirt that says you can't scare me. I work for James Cameron, which due to the research, uh, that was a shirt that the crew in Pinewood wore just to kind of show their, disdain worth working with him there's a number of things that i learned from this documentary that i didn't know from watching maybe superior firepower or something like that um what was i think maybe your biggest source of information and between peter matt and uh, fernando what was the 
most mind-blowing thing you learned about James throughout this whole process? Um, in terms of kind of reconstructing history, um, I think all archival material was on the table. Um, so I don't think that there's kind of any, any one um, source that we pulled from more than another. Um, there are, there's a lot of reporting, I think, that was done on his movies. There's a little bit that has been done on his personal life, but um, all of the interviews that we have in our, our bonus episodes are, are direct interviews that I'm doing, um, you know, and, and going and recording people that are, you know, James Cameron's friend in 1977 when they go see Star Wars, you know, and they're sitting next to him for that. And he's a truck driver at the time. So it's like, we really wanted to get into what the kind of psychological, you know, motivation was um, for what created uh, Jim Cameron. Cause I, I, I think it's a little bit more mysterious than with the Spielberg where you can kind of trace back, you know, a lot of like his family history moved around a lot and, you know, his dad was in the military and what, you know, there's a lot of things that are kind of start to echo a little bit in his movies, but with James Cameron, it's harder for people to identify what makes a James Cameron movie. So that's the first thing is like, what are the signatures of a James Cam? How can you tell that you're watching a James Cameron movie? Mm. And a lot of people would say, I'm not really sure. Cause they're all pretty different. Um, whereas the hallmark of a Spielberg movie, like you just, you know, when you're watching a Spielberg movie, um, it's such a, a strong, unique thing. That's pretty consistent throughout his films. So um, I think we wanted to identify the things that influence his films. And, and with the goal kind of being that at the end of our series, you understand both the professional hurdles that he went through in order to make these, you know, monumental uh, films that everyone has seen, um, which are impressive enough by themselves. But you also understand the personal journey and the fact that he has, you know, relationships, um, the fact that his family is pressuring him a little bit to his, his father specifically is pressuring him to do something else. Even after he starts to have some success, there's uneasiness about, uh, about this career because, you know, being a, a creative, uh, being working in Hollywood is something that is so, um, there's so much chance involved. And, um, and James really doubles down on, you know, w with that pressure coming in and wants to go prove himself. And um, I think that ambition is something that is in a fraction of a percentage of the overall population naturally um it's a stubbornness it's a perfectionist kind of mindset of like well i'm i'm going to go you know i'm going to bust my ass and do everything i possibly can to to show them wrong and i think it takes a unique a unique kind of vision from someone like that um and and we also kind of wanted to revisit you know these scenes of james i don't know what's the right word getting into fights <laughs> with people as his career is advancing. Um, there's, he's, he's like a, when, when you're talking about this, I'm just thinking to myself, like he, it's an incredible story that you don't expect basically, because when, when we started, I, I was at the beginning confused. I'm like, James Cameron, are we telling the story of James Cameron? And and but once I read the scripts, I said, "Oh wow! Like he's he's an incredible 
force, like just a force. And he's in a way unstoppable. Like if he wants to do it, he will do it. Even if it means... He'll find a way, yeah. He'll find a way to do it, even if it means literally, like, like on most of his movies, like, even Titanic, he gave away the points on the movie. He yeah. knew. He gives away his share. <laughs> so he like, doesn't... Wow. He genuinely <laughs> does not care at that point about making the money. He's like, I'm going to finish the movie, take my money, go, let me finish this movie. He's so unstoppable. And he's going to do it himself because he's also... You know, he's got the engineering DNA, so technically he knows so much that he actually tells people, like, he's able to have an in-depth conversation with all of his department heads. And so with that in mind, it's like he trusts people to deliver, but, like, the standards are so high. And, yeah, I think, like, just unstoppable force. Like, that's what I think when after after we finish the season um, – I was like, I realized that essentially this is not just the story of James Cameron. This is the story, uh, an inspirational story of what it means to have so much power inside of yourself. So much just determination that nothing can stop you. And yeah, okay, yeah, let's go to the very bottom well, of the And I ocean. don't even know that it's, it's that necessarily. It's that, um, it's that why can't we do this? It, yeah, it like it's yeah. it's that idea of yeah. of uh well no one's done this before. Well why haven't they? Yeah, why haven't why, they? Why let's they? go why to the bottom I? of the ocean. Let let's just shoot the Titanic. Oh, nobody found it? Okay, yeah, well, it's fine. We'll find it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think for me it was also that the thing that I learned the most about him that I didn't know was one that he really turned his career into what it was fairly quickly, you know. It's actually very impressive how quickly he went. And the fact that he also had this ambition to go for larger-than-life projects and projects that nobody would imagine they would give to, you know, a first-time writer, director like Terminator. And then the fact that the movie that followed that was Aliens, it's just mind-blowing to me, and it just shows that determination. And I think a lot of us, when we work in media, we think we need to settle for whatever job comes your way or for whatever thing is going to pay the bill sometimes. But one thing that really shows through this podcast and his character is that you can choose and you can be sort of bold and say, I'm going to make this because this is what I want to make. And if you do it with all your conviction, it's definitely going to pay off. Sometimes it might not become a huge blockbuster success like it happened with Terminator but it's one of the biggest cult followings now, you know, and it's we consider it a blockbuster success. Because and I'll I say know too, a person that doesn't know that that, that film. To speak a little bit more to what uh, Fernando did, and um, I feel like there's the sound design and there's kind of the intellectual constructing of the series. Um, you know, we we are plotting out the whole kind of trajectory of and the story arc and, and what happens and everything. And, you know, with the idea of really showing this, this kind of transformation that takes place toward the end. But, um, but it's, it's the music that actually gives us a sense of the emotional beats of what the character, what, what Jim Cameron is going through. Um, and 
we have this constant, you know, these ups and downs of like, oh, I think, you know, this is going to be something really special. And then it kind of, it disappoints or it flops or something falls through. And there's like, there's this low of like, that was going to be it. That was going to be the shot that, that we had at this. And now one stupid little thing fell through and it's not going to be what it was. And, you know, everything that I was working toward is never going to reach that level that I thought was within reach. And, um, and that constant back and forth that the music is pulling us through in this series, Fernando's awesome music, all kind of culminates in in what he does on Titanic, which is I'm going to make the most expensive, craziest movie ever, and <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna literally it's gonna be the the you know an awe inspiring story that that uh, you know everyone's gonna like, and I'm finally gonna gonna show that I have what it takes to to uh, to be you know a, a Hollywood filmmaker you know he's very much an outsider you know he's coming in a, a Canadian guy basically coming into Hollywood doesn't really know the right way that a film set is supposed to work so he is constantly you know stepping on people's toes and saying no you're not doing this part right and you know maybe I'll just do this part and people are saying hey wait a second you can't do that there's unions there's rules there's and he says well I don't care it has to get done and I know how it's supposed to get done and um that you can see how that would ruffle some feathers, <laughs> but um, but also you see the vision that is there, you know, even very early on, and he understands the way everything is supposed to come together and what needs to happen in order to get the story and the film and then eventually the music all into one thing that packs a real punch. And you know, there's a reason that all of his movies are great. They're great. They're all, each one of his movies is a great film. Mm-hmm. And um, there are not many filmmakers like this. I agree. I agree. Um, with with that, you know, you're doing this amazing show, this podcast, and it is just, you know, doing so well out there in the open. People are uh, as as anybody uh, giving you suggestions on who to do next. Like I know if you're doing George Lucas and Spielberg, I know because they're friends. I know somebody like Robert Zemeckis and even at some point Stanley Kubrick or uh, John Landis all were in that group back in the Jaws days. And so, and they all have excellent uh, music in their films and they've all made an impact. Is there anything on the horizon or that y'all three have discussed like, oh, we should do this person next? I have my opinions, but... It's always up to Matt. <laughs> We've thrown around a few things, but there's nothing official. What would you say, Fernando? I mean, we've talked about so many things. I think we even talked about precursors to this, like uh, Hitchcock, and you know that really Im- inspired a lot of these people. Or even, you know, nowadays directors that have sort of taken blockbuster to a different place, like uh, Christopher Nolan. You know, it's a different kind of blockbuster. Okay. I'm I'm maybe waiting to see how this whole tenant situation pans <laughs> out too because that's a really yeah, you'll have to wait till next unfolding. year. <laughs> I know, yeah, no, but I, well, we do we do have unfold. we do have certain things in development uh, already. So uh, you'll be seeing for sure you'll be seeing stuff from us coming out. Um, and yeah, I mean these are big projects that take. Time. Yeah, no, they, they time, take yeah. time. They no, this take time. Last year, we were, uh, well, I guess I was, I was still probably writing, but we were just starting. I mean, it's been 12 months, and granted, there's other factors that we've all had to deal with throughout this time, including delaying our release of this season a little bit because of coronavirus stuff. 
but um but you know this is probably takes roughly six to nine months to to build out one of these seasons given all the research and then all the recording the sound design for everything um the music obviously um, we so the there's table, a lot that our, all has to kind of come together our table read was on i'm looking at my files december 5th i think no october yeah yeah Earlier october so oh, we wow. did our first table read off of which i typically start working in october yeah nine months um, ago yeah so it no, was all of, written by then and yeah and it was written by the then so you know and of course it's happening in parallel to other projects so it's not like we're working on it on a on a daily basis but i would say you know well, I'm happy to have my Saturdays, actually. <laughs> I told Matt. I'm like, I have my Saturdays, Saturdays? back now. <laughs> yeah, because typically on Saturdays, we'd be for sure working together. Like, that was our kind of, like, 100%. That's guaranteed. That I, What am I doing on Saturday? Oh, Blockbuster. So. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. For me, it was more of a blessing in disguise. In, in the end, the virus, because, you know, I'm a studio musician as well, and uh, I had a bunch of sessions set up and concerts set up that I had to play on. Because uh, composing, you know, I, if I'm just at home, I just do it. But that I was kind of stressing about finishing the score on time. And then this happened and it allowed me to be a little bit more relaxed about it. And it's really, I think, elevated the music too. And and uh, we'll have, we, act, we have a, a soundtrack link that's on getblockbuster.com. You can go see Fernando Arroyo Lascarain's uh, soundtrack there, which... Um, we're we're uh we're kind of putting finishing touches on right now i won't say too much about that but we're really really <laughs> excited for uh to release that as uh as the first original podcast score yeah. what, what's the total runtime i heard it's over two hours is that raw of music? music well, well yeah, for the whole exactly, series uh, series yes the soundtrack yeah, is gonna be two and a half but yes because uh in the soundtrack i think what i what we want to do is really point out to like the big themes and the big moments. And uh, because obviously it's a podcast as with many soundtracks, you know, the cues are shorter and whatnot. And I think something that is very special about this podcast is that we do have some big musical moments, which I've never heard in a podcast before. And uh, we're aiming to, you know, give more of that sort of story, storyline, still feel the storyline through the soundtrack. Mm. Like, I'm excited, yeah, excited to hear how uh, the the music of the Fever Dream episode, where James is conjuring the uh, ideas yeah. for Terminator, hear that extrapolated uh, autonomously from uh, the the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, one of my favorite scenes in in the series. There's another one that's coming up in a couple episodes that I'm I'm uh, is really cool. There's a it's a, there's a lot more sound design in that kind of dream thing that we built out but that was the cool thing too about this season is last last season the closest we got to something kind of abstract you know it was mostly literal storytelling this scene something happens moves on to the next scene something happens that moves on to the next scene in this one we have these kind of weird things that come up that that you know like that dream that never actually took place Mm. it was just in someone's (laughs) head so you know like we are having to go in and create with very little structure except from some people's kind of descriptions and you'll remember like when someone says oh i had this dream and this happened and this happened there's a million different ways that that actually would have looked and sounded and felt in a dream so we're having to build out these literal dreamscapes where weird things are happening 
and uh, and the way that the the sound design then comes into that, like how do you convince someone that they're in a dream, and uh, that it's a it's a cool challenge to be able to do in another season of this because usually yeah. that's the type of thing reserved for a fiction story, and in this case we have the fiction that's embedded in this nonfiction kind of biography um, of of uh, what's happening, and it's just a really cool moment to get outside of the literal day to day and what's yeah. uh, you know, how he's making a film or interacting with family or friends or, or, um, or uh, you know, whoever, and then seeing the inner kind of exploration of his mind. You know, to that, one of the aspects also just within the music and kind of developing that sense of him maturing and him having his different struggles as he gets older, the music also got simpler as the episodes went on. I allowed more time for the sound design to sort of take over because, uh, you know, that I think that's one of the things that happens as you go into adulthood. You realize, uh, you know, the veil of, uh, you know, the veil of innocence is lifted. And we see that more with him. But we do touch still on those moments that bring back that magic you have as a child, you know, or as a younger creative just starting out. And it shifts, you know, it's not just about the kind of magic. We have that long cue in episode three, Fernando, that's, you know, kids on bicycles. There's that's a very, kind of like 19, <laughs> you know, whatever ET kind of a feel to that. Um, mm-hmm. But, but, you know, as James grows, we hear a lot of those same feet, the same kind of musical motifs that then start to become something that, that feels a little more mature and more advanced mm-hmm. and, and is starting to explore other parts of that kind of identity, which is the coolest part of this whole thing. Cause we come away thinking like, I totally now understand why the ocean is important to James. I totally understand, you know, key relationship things that happen in a lot of his movies, the obsession with the way science fiction and, you know, the next, the, the cutting edge of technology interacts mm-hmm. with us right now. You know, all of these little things that he's is interesting to him that are embedded in his films. And mm-hmm. I think you come away, at least in my mind, I can now, of course, I've seen all of his movies a million times by now, but um, I feel like you can come away from each, you know, any scene that are in any of his movies and say, oh, I, I know where that came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's a cool thing is we're actually being able to kind of bring out the personality that's driven all these things that have changed pop culture. And I feel also that the, the ambition and the, where the ambition and the personal struggles he has with his dad, especially, I think it's something that a lot of people in the creative fields can uh, identify with, you know? Oh yeah. That sense mm-hmm. of like, why are you doing this? Why did you choose? Hopefully, I, thankfully I didn't have that, but I know many people who did and you know, that push Yep. And it makes sense why he's so ambitious and won't let up. It's interesting because when we started off, Matt, I think you said that he doesn't, you can tell a Spielberg f- film, but you can't tell a um, James Cameron film. And it's like, actually, you can, right? Yeah. By all those little things that are under the hood of the mm-hmm. movie, like when you actually start analyzing it, that's your through line, that's your James Cameron movie. And, and if you but, listen to Blockbuster, you'll, and if, you'll know. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, you'll know. <laughs> Get blockbuster.com. You <laughs> yes, can also thank you. Yes. And the t shirt. 
the t-shirt. <laughs> right. Um, I want to ask a, a couple of really fun questions for you, uh, for you guys. Um, so for each of you, um, what is your most thrilling music experience, both as a fan and as a performer or talent? Oh, I'll bet Fernando has a good one for this. I, I have a simple one. I'll, I'll say um, it was when we were filming uh, Score, a film music documentary, and it was the first scoring session that we sat in on, which was for John Debney's Spongebob, I think, and not, not considered maybe one of the great, greats of all time. But, um, but it was my first direct experience sitting in the room with all of these musicians that are incredibly talented, like Fernando, who are incredibly talented. Um, and you can feel the energy. And the amazing thing is like you, you get wrapped up in the emotion of this music that's coming from everywhere in the room. And you feel... I don't, it's, I guess it's wind mm. or it, it, it like to, to some extent, like you do feel the air moving in, in a room like that. But, um, but it was something more than that. It's like, it's the energy from all of that, that just like, you feel like you're absorbing this amazing kind of feeling that's all being produced, this, you know, raw creativity that's happening. So I, I would say like that first moment of like, holy shit like <laughs> this is amazing and i think that's also the moment where we were like we think this this documentary is definitely gonna work it's like the static electricity in the air you feel it you yeah feel, feel the needles kind of like in there yeah. which is why i would encourage if you ever have the opportunity to go sit in a scoring session everyone has to do it it's just it's too cool of an experience to ever pass up yeah a bit more nerve-wracking on the other side on the <laughs> right side, but still very exciting <laughs> Uh, for me, I think uh, there's two things. I mean, since we're talking about film music, obviously, throughout my musical life, there's been many because I do classical music as well. But uh, as a listener was uh, going to see um, the first Lord of the Rings film, so I was very obsessed with those books already. And when I saw it and I just heard the opening prologue music, it immediately transported me to that place. And I said, oh my God, what is this? And the first thing I did when I got home was figure out the theme. And then immediately I started like obsessively listening to the soundtrack. And because it's one of those things that makes you realize how transformative even a single chord and how it's voiced can be. And then as a performer, Again, within the film music world, it's uh, the first time I got to play in a scoring session here in LA for a, for a big film. And, you know, you sit there and uh, all of the musicians are very competent, right? You have some of the greatest musicians here. And um, it's amazing because you practice your whole life and then one day you get here to these stages. I think it was at, a, at Sony, which to me is the greatest sounding uh, acoustic space for music I've ever been in. And, mm. you know, you sit in there, you hear the click go, and there's a sense of expectation of what's about to happen. And everybody just reads the chart through. And especially when the music is music that really feels good to play, you can sense the musicians going for it. You can sense everybody moving as a unit. And it's just, it's an incredible experience. It gave me goosebumps. And Actually, that first session I had, at some point I got so uh, uh, riled up and excited, there was a, a very soft spot where we 
you know, when you play the violin, if you're kind of very shaking or having goosebumps and your bow kind of shake and it sounds awful if you're playing very soft, long notes. And I knew that was going to happen just from the excitement. So I took my bow off and I uh, pretended that I needed to sneeze. I didn't, but just to calm myself down and then get back to it. And that was, I was just smiling the whole way through it, you know? It's really something very powerful, as Matt said. Yeah. Hear that. You know, especially if it's your first time, you realize it's just happening right there and it brings the music alive. And the level of the musicians in LA is so impressive that we can make a phrase immediately without ever seeing the music before or without uh, knowing the style. Within, I would say, two measures of music, we know what the style is and it's on it. It's really incredible. Awesome. What about yeah. you, Peter? I think, I mean, I'm going to be boring here, but when when we were on the mix stage with Score, uh, I um, we got to somewhere, I don't know, three quarters into the movie or halfway through the movie. We have the John Williams E.T. section. And uh, it was actually, let me just preface, when we started the whole project, I told Matt, I said, I said guys, we need the stems for this. We can't just use the stereo thing that you have on your edit. We need to reach out. Like you recorded, the, you you know these composers now. Just get as much as you can, and they got a lot of the stems of all the music that we had. That we recut it back into the movie, and we're 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 on the ET scene, and you're essentially remixing it, right? Because it's it's a it's a documentary you're making. You're not making ET. You're making a documentary, but Essentially, you you're there, and fingers. My fingers on the faders, and the faders are basically playing the music. And uh, for for most people who have never touched a fader, it's very delicate and it's sensitive. And yes, it controls the volume, but really, what it controls is like you're controlling the emotions of the room. And and I remember we got through the scene, and you just kind of go. You wait till the in real time. You wait till the cue finishes, and then. Typically, what happens is I'll turn around and I'll ask the producers and director, like, okay, what do you think? What are your notes? And we go again. And I did the scene, and I didn't even turn around. I just went back to the beginning, and I just said quietly, yeah, let me give it another pass. I didn't turn around because I was basically, like, crying. And I was like, holy shit, I just mixed E.T. And I'm like, and the second pass, I didn't even touch the faders. I was just doing elbow moves all the time, pretending to be mixing. But it was just this like surreal <laughs> moment where you're like, I know I didn't mix E.T., but like that came pretty darn close. Like you felt the energy uh, because we got to remix it in a way in, in that movie. And, you know, it, it was amazing. That, that's great. Um, another fun question for you all. What's the most curious or strangest recording that you have, whether it be an outtake from a musician or the strangest, creepiest record? Uh, what's, the, what's the most mm. curious recording that you own in your, in your collection? Well, I feel like that's one for Peter, for sure. I got, I got yeah. a great one here. Uh, so, and... What I do a lot is I, I record sound effects because wherever, whenever we go on a family trip or whatever, I always get, take my gear with me. And uh, whether it's even my iPhone, I mean, I've recorded so many things on my iPhone. I've, I have a 
seven-month-old baby, and of course, I've got microphones permanently rigged around his crib, and it's just recording I all day long. I believe this, too. He sent me a photo, you know, he, he has a, a, what, a week-old baby, and you're like, I'm all set up, and I thought you were joking. No, 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 it's still you recording. Stereo sound every every on the day, crib. it's recording the crib, because he makes sounds at night, he cries, and I'm like, one day, I'll be working on a movie with a baby. I'll need that. <laughs> and one day, when he's 20 years old, he's going to say, what the hell, Dan? Well, I got already he's asked. recording me way. all the time. So anyhow, uh, but the baby isn't the craziest. I had, I had a very, very weird situation, like at the beginning, when I was fin- after somewhere at the end of film school. Uh, we lived in an apartment building with my wife, and, and that was a weird situation, some, some unstable person mentally moved into some apartment and they ended up being a squatter the building had an issue kicking them out and everything it's like one of those crazy stories that you sometimes hear well what did peter do peter rigged up microphones outside of his outside of his (laughs) apartment because when you've got a guy yelling crazy stuff just crazy stuff uh, I mean, it's public domain because it's in the public. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. sure that's how it works. Uh, whatever. <laughs> we'll ever know. He's, he's go- we'll it was golden. Know. It's it's like it's passionate. It's passionate, but and he was probably inebriated, so he wouldn't even recognize it. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> um, I will say that my well, Fernando. I don't know if you have an answer to this. Well, I have a few, so I'm thinking which one is weirder. So you go first. I'll brag on one other thing because I'm not really a collector of sounds myself, Um, but there was a really cool one that we did last season, which was um, Peter requested the uh, basically vibration recordings from the Mars rover, and we were able to – essentially convert that into audible sound that we actually used in last season. So you actually hear the real sound of Mars uh, in, uh, in one of those scenes that we have, um, which was like not really relevant to the story, but I thought it was such a cool little inside thing. That's awesome. Uh, for me, I think I'm going to choose one that is uh, sort of nerdy, but also interesting, which is in the sixties, there was this whole strange movement of, concert music, you know, classical concert music, super experimental, where they would do, you know, fur music that was literally a piece of fur and they would rub it against, kind of like ASMR would be now. But there is one recording I have of the premiere of a piece for, uh, it's called Variations for Door and Side. And it's literally a recording of somebody moving a door around and it creaks and they go, (sighs) and it's like a 15 minute piece. I need to hear that. I need. Can you send yeah. that to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to go through my hard drives and find it. But yeah, <laughs> it's one of the most curious things I've heard in my life. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of crazy pieces that have been written, but that's one of the most <laughs> hilarious ones. And I, and I remember when I first heard about it was during my uh, music history class in, in my freshman year. And um, the teacher at the time, he actually was around for that whole period. He was one of the composers of this whole period. And when he started playing it, I mean, you can just imagine a room full of uh, 19-year-old freshman musicians that are mostly used to playing Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff just, you know, 
cracking up about every <laughs> single movement of this piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, think I wonder if that was the. I wonder if that was the inspiration for a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, because every time a door in the spaceship opened, it would go, ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you never know. They, they might have been friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. I like that. Um, so, and one of my last questions is, uh, you know, you're obviously big purveyors uh, and, you know, passionate people about the music and film industry. Um, what are certain musical moments or scenes in movies that always stick with you, that you're just constantly on your mind? You know, for me, you, uh, you all talked about music being so inspiring and, you know, invoking that passion. And so for me, that was the 80s movie Explorers with, Ethan Hawke, um, and it's the first, uh, it's when they build the Tilt-A-Whirl spaceship and Jerry Goldsmith's sound. I, I mean, that inspired me to do music and movies. And so that, I mean, uh, are there any moments like that for you guys? Peter, you want to? I'm no. thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> There's I mean, so many. The, the, the question is... is exactly which one? Yeah, you'd say a few, say a few. We, uh, we usually um, everybody. Well, that. okay. My, my, this is the answer that I would have given if Peter hadn't already said E.T. E.T. <laughs> the end of E.T. is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the whole last 18 minutes or whatever it is, it's all, it's all music. It all builds. It's all momentum. It's all energy and excitement and joy. It's like an um, opera, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's its own journey. I mean, it's its own style of storytelling that is um so amazing and i i think it's a big influence on a lot of what we're doing on blockbuster too is like we want the music to not just feel like oh we need some we need this to feel sad so then okay let's put some sad music it's like let's find a way for the music to actually push us forward a little bit and enhance something a little bit instead of it just being you know some accent music or something to fill the awkwardness which is how like in my opinion, there are some beautiful pieces of music that are written just to fill space, but that's not really where the magic happens in storytelling. It, the magic happens when you can lean into the narrative and feel the story happening through the music. Um, so I, I would say E.T. is one of those. And then uh, I, I would also say these are both in in the documentary that we did. But I'd also say that... Um, I think that just the the end music of The Dark Knight, which has been knocked off endlessly now, but um, it's a really just, you know, powerful ending that um, I just remember sitting in the theater, you know, watching the end of that and like everyone just applauds after. And it's it's a cool experience to have at a film like that where or at Inception where everyone gasps at the end, you know, Mm -hmm. like. There's a cool kind of communal thing to all of that. And the music plays into it so strongly. I think for, okay, so I've got two or three. Uh, Disney's Fantasia 2000. I think that's an incredible piece of taking existing music and showing you what it can do to picture. Because that all that music existed beforehand, right? Fantasia mm-hmm. 2000 is classical music on top of which they put animation. I think that's like a, a I mean, I'm going to be playing that in loop to my son soon, but that's the one Two 
would be Matt, you mentioned Inception. I remember like there was something about Inception, that simple trick of taking Eddie Piaf's song and slowing it down, yeah. making mm-hmm. it part of the whole story. Like it it was incorporated like rarely you get music incorporated into the story, right? Very often music is oh later, right? If you get lucky, we need a song on set. Can you compose us something? Great. Thanks. See you when we finish, right? But here it's like it's written into the script. Um, and third thing, I always found it fascinating. At the, if, 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 if anyone can grab the CD album of the soundtrack of... I don't know why I love this one, but I do. The soundtrack of Twister. Mark Mangini. Uh, oh. Mark, uh, what was his name? Mark Mancina. Manch- yeah, Mark Mancina. Um, the very top of the, the whole thing, there's about six, eight seconds of silence. But actually, if you crank up the volume, you can hear the conductor. Five, six, seven, eight. And then the music kicks in. It's such a beautiful little one that I always thought, like, God, I'd love to be in that room. So <laughs> It's a great answer for a... Yeah remarkably terrible movie <laughs> that I, I just yeah. watched recently, by the way, and I did it knowing that it's a terrible movie, but... Um, Twister? But, you know, I wasn't That's allowed terrible. to watch it. In, like, I'd love to do the remake. They just announced they're going to do part oh two. <laughs> well, you can't replace Bill Paxton, but they can yeah. they can do better on almost everything else. In my very man. Catholic school, I wasn't allowed <laughs> right. to watch it because they signed divorce papers. <laughs> but uh yeah for me i mean there's several there's several obvious obvious moments that that i'm gonna say three i guess i'll say four <laughs> just because um one of my favorite moments in film uh, in film music is whenever the music goes from diegetic to non-diegetic music and one of those great moments is in the truman show when Truman starts realizing that, uh, you know, the world he said is actually fake. <laughs> what was done very smart was that up until that moment, most of the soundtrack from the film was, uh, well, not the soundtrack for the film, it's such an interesting film because we have diegetic music, then we have the soundtrack that we as the audience of the film are watching, but then there's also the soundtrack that the audience of the show within the film is watching. It's, it's probably one of the most interesting uh, plays on all of that. But there's this moment that uh, as he's realizing that, you know, there's these elements, the lamp fell, there he notices uh, these two people walking by or the kids staring at him and all these little things, the music starts shifting from being all samples into slowly bringing in real instruments until it becomes the actual score to the film as he achieves this realization. And that to me is one of the most interesting moments in film music ever because it's so masterfully done. And you don't realize it unless you're looking for it, but it does create this emotional shift. That movie is filled with moments like that. The same when he meets his dad again and they tell him, uh, they tell the composer on staff, oh, bring in the music. And then they bring it. But it's also the music that we're feeling and it's a little bit bittersweet. It's, it's fascinating. Um, the same thing happens in The Last of the Mohicans in the sex scene. They go from the fiddle in the campfire and then it turns into the actual soundtrack. That's great. 
Now, the other one, um, this more the use of classical music to, uh, you know, really make a scene speak, which is in Amadeus when we hear the Lacrimosa. Um, it's such a heartbreaking piece to begin with. And in a film about Mozart in that moment, it's probably the most powerful, powerful use of classical music. Um, and another moment for me that is just incredibly special um, is in, um, is in uh, sorry, I'm blanking on the name right now, on Close, in Close Encounters, mm -hmm. the final scene. Because again, it's when the music is the big payoff, right? We've been hearing these tones that du, du, don't, du, yeah. Du, du, and John yeah. Williams so perfectly puts them in all other parts of the score, but in ways that are sort of hidden at most of the time. And then all of a sudden, it all makes sense. And it does this wonderful thing of making the aliens sound familiar to us. Even if we don't realize it as the audience, but it's right there, you know, and it's just incredible. It, it always gives me goosebumps. Obviously, the AT scene as well, but since everybody else said it, and I think <laughs> most people that love film and music can agree that's one of the greatest moments ever. And uh, and another, and finally, another great moment for me in film music is, um, uh, you know, in a, uh, I'm blanking also the name, in Vertigo. It's such a scene. Oh, yeah. Bernard Herrmann. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. such a simple theme, but it's one of the most evocative themes out there. And I wish we still heard more of that because it's so interestingly enough, I think it's one of those things that could fit even today in today's style of filmmaking. That's true. Yeah. It's yep. so it's nostalgic um, and it, heartbreaking, it was interesting. but also disturbing at the same time, you know. I know that the Amazon series, the first season of Homecoming, did tried to imitate some of the, or actually, they might have actually pulled some of the original cues from Bernard Herrmann, but they okay. they uh, brought in some of that. It was either influenced by, or it was actually mm -hmm. the recordings from him. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's yeah. great. It fits really well. It's it's uh, it's aged very gracefully, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, wonderful. I mean, I have many, but the part four that really stand out. Yeah, we can keep going if you want. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is what I do every day, so, you know? There's a lot, and a lot to learn from from them, too. No, those are all great answers, and we love all of them. And we, Mark and I have listened to all these records together, and we just, like, sit down and have some whiskey or a beer, and we're just like, this is good stuff. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the one record I'm waiting for, uh, in, in Vada released, or maybe, is Entrada it released the Rocketeer expanded and uh, I, I oh yeah I can't wait for James Horner's score to because that you know when we ask composers or talent what's their favorite music memory mine is always the part in the Rocketeer where he falls off the he's trying to save Malcolm on the biplane he's going through the cornfield oh, yeah. it's just so up and down and yeah so when that gets on record we'll all have a listening party um Speaking of records, even though we're not going to get the score to this podcast on vinyl, one of the things that I liked when I was a kid, I grew up listening to 101 Dalmatians, the story of it on vinyl. So in a, in a fantastical fictional world, do you think you would ever want to have score the podcast, not score the podcast, Blockbuster season one, season two on record for children? And seeing as season two is R-rated, you probably wouldn't be for children. But I think people would get a kick out of having this on um, – you know, on vinyl. 
Yeah, uh, that's a cool idea. I hadn't thought of that, but um, that would be a cool. Uh, I I maybe we'll explore that because I would. <laughs> I want it in that form. <laughs> Hang on, what's the what's the runtime of vinyl? How many minutes? Uh, oh yeah, we'd have twenty two minutes aside. Uh, yeah, you'd have a bit of vinyls there because we've got what five, five hours. Yeah, one one per episode, and then a couple of those for season two would have to be multiple. Yeah, that would be good. Well, like I said, a fictional, fantastical world, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. If there was, if you could stuff it all on one disc, totally. (laughs) And actually, you know, they did. This is sort of a side quest. uh, Stranger Things, uh, the first season. I think they Mm -hmm. had two vinyl releases that were two double discs. So I mean, you know, you're talking close to four hours of music there for was it eight episodes something like that so mm-hmm. i mean yeah. a, a lot of vinyl's not a bad thing that's what she <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah totally no i um, as i said earlier i'm a fan now i'm i'm a i'm a vinyl geek oh good. So i would that'd be cool to do i guess well, i guess i gotta join the party soon in that case <laughs> so, we'll, we'll we'll send you our top five everybody uh you know send peter you know, they're the top five recommendations and top five to start well, with. Now, now there's more time to do those things, so maybe I should, you know. <laughs> I'm a fan of old vinyls. I haven't gotten into, like, newer ones, but I have a lot of film music and classical music and jazz and stuff like that in vinyls. But back home, though, not in L.A., I should bring them over at some point. That's well, good. my last question for this group, um, Matt, there's a, there's a line in, um, in, I think it's episode four this season, where um, you narrate some dialogue between Arnold Schwarzenegger and James Cameron, and James is purported to say, I don't tell you how to act, don't tell me how to write. Mm-hmm. So, is that a James Cameron quote or a Matt Schrader quote? And guys, Peter, Fernando, can you tell me uh, how tyrannical Matt Schrader is as the Spearhead of well, this we whole signed NDAs, so uh... <laughs> I made everyone sign an NDA so they can't reveal how uh, tyrannical. That is the best director in the world. <laughs> That's that right. Just... He's such a good collaborator. No, like the way you can always tell, and it's I always think this is interesting. Is like you, you'll see someone where, and this happened a little bit with uh, with some of the actors that James Cameron has worked on, where Ed Harris, you know, after the Abyss, who almost drowned during the Abyss, and in our series, we actually, the abyss is one thing that we are uh, not spending as much time on because it's not part of the personal journey of James Cameron as much. But, um, but you know, he's asked about James and, and a lot of the reactions, especially from people that have been pressured by James in order to try to elevate the performance that James is trying to get to. And a lot of their, they'll say, Oh yeah, well he's a uh, he's a great director, you know. Uh, what do you what do you what do you expect? He uh, he he demands the best, you know. It's like it's this code that's like I had a rotten time, you know, trying to trying to do this, um, and uh, and you know, so far Peter and uh, Fernando haven't said that about me. So, <laughs> well, Peter and I. What have did I just say? What did I just say? <laughs> No, no, it, it has been great because one thing that I've really enjoyed about working with Matt is that, you know, especially I feel like as a film composer these days, especially if you're young, it's hard to navigate this industry because you're approached a lot to either imitate uh, or do things by young directors, especially to do things that aren't necessarily interesting, you know? There might be just like a... a 
because people fall in love so much with their images and with whatever their temp is that whenever you veered off a little bit, they'll tend to say, oh, no, 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 not that much. And then you end up stripping things down to a place that you're basically just doing a drone and a couple of drone patterns here and there. And it's a joy to, to work with somebody that enjoys, actually enjoys music. And I've, in recent years, I've made that a point for myself to only work with people that, you know, even if the music isn't going to be huge, like the previous, the film I met Peter with, the music is 100% different than this. And Peter can attest to that. Mm, and yep. It's completely the opposite of this. But still, it was the same thing, you know, and Matt definitely has that quality. And I love the fact, I'm also a big, a big advocate for less music. And Matt kept saying, no, let's try something here. And, you know, <laughs> which is great. But I like that with Matt, storytelling is always king. And a lot that's of what the, that's what the magical that. part of music yeah. is. Yeah. People forget about that and they go with their egos. And even for me, sometimes I would fight for something, you know, that Matt didn't like. And then we'd come to an agreement. And sometimes I would say, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's go with that. And it's a partnership, which is always great to have. Yeah, I if if to wrap it up, I would just say you know I've I've, I've had a chance of having chairs thrown in my direction on mixed stages and <laughs> and and, and horror and stories from, horror stories that you know you hear this is the world of art people get excited and animated sometimes when they can't accomplish what they're envisioning the great thing about and and why we got to do season two and I'm sure we're going to do many more is like, this is an actual partnership. Like each one of us brings something to the table mm -hmm. and we're all creative voices. And like you can't, everyone is playing their solo instrument, right? We're not part of an army where our voice gets looped out uh, and, and it all becomes lukewarm and there's no vision to it. No, there's a very clear vision. And you know, the fact that I can, with Fernando, like I can actually do things like let's do this scene together before we show it to Matt. It literally yeah. just shows like, yeah, we get to, I think this is something unique about the podcast format, you mm -hmm. know, because it's a smaller production, but it's equally demanding as, as movies oh, yeah. are like you have a bit more flexibility to, to, to move uh, in, in, in all possible directions, you know, with, with this, so, yeah. But, you know, when it comes to that flexibility, actually, somebody asked on Twitter how different this was from working on a, on a score for a film. And I didn't treat it differently at all. It's the I same. would take whatever you would send me, and because yep. I thought the pacing was right, I would only shift it if I thought the pacing, like, I could use one more beat. But most of the time, I just try to go with it because, you know, it is my job to find the breath and the rhythm within what you already gave me. And yeah. Well, like ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah, it's the, the the we we really like because we all come from the film world. We approach it like a movie, and it just becomes that. It it's the same workflow. It's the same software we yeah. use, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent, guys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this has been a blast. Uh, here's the yeah, part where you get us. to tell uh, all the listeners where to find all of your amazing productions podcasts uh, online. And all right. 
getblockbuster.com is probably the easiest place. Um, you can get all the links to listen to our Blockbuster series there um, on Apple. You know, it's on all the all the platforms, Spotify, um, and then all the uh, all of the the podcast. Uh, professional apps that they have that uh, that I have a few of now and still deciding what I like best. Um, the soundtrack uh, by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain is um, available for pre-order now. It's on getblockbuster.com. Click on store. Um, and uh, you can follow all of us on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram uh, at blockbusterpod. Perfect, perfect. Everybody go do that. It is worth... All of the time, it is worth your weekend. It, it, do it, do it, do it. Uh, it's amazing. We look forward to more from you, and we would love to have you on uh, in season three.